Hey everyone, before the big Hi Guys intro, please may I request of you to subscribe to and rate this podcast as apparently that's really important in the algorithmic world that is podcast land. Once again, please subscribe to and rate this podcast. On with the show. Hi guys and welcome to this episode of How to Wow with the delightful Ramesh Ranganathan. I love Ramesh. I think he's super professional, I think he's super grounded, super nice, super duper funny, but he is fortunately also over 10 years younger than me, so there are plenty of moments in this conversation where we happily probe each other for the answers to life's elusive questions. And this super special episode is brought to you in association with our friends at Athletic Greens. Every morning, Tash, my wife, and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity, and digestion. Deep seaweed green, like nature itself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six okay ten tops to prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous and so here's how you can get yours simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day again simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow okay and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal athletic greens have given how to wow listeners a free year's supply of vitamin d and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go once again athletic Greens.com slash don't forget how to wow. Okay, and now cue the conversation. Ramesh, you are a pot of gold at the moment for an interviewer. You think so? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're you're you ha- you still have imposter syndrome, which I completely get. That's the thing that two things people are talking about at the moment. Um it's it's like everybody's getting off their screens, but not getting off their screens. Um and everybody's got imposter syndrome. And yeah. it's brilliant because I because I'm there as well. I, I'm I'm with you as well on that particular page. But you've got imposter syndrome, even though it's quite obvious now that you are good at what you do, and you you're gonna have to try really hard to fuck it up. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it doesn't matter, it could still happen. Yeah, but you've still got it. Um, you are you having your pre midlife midlife crisis, and everyone thinks they can get ahead of a midlife crisis, but you can't, and so you've got to find that out. Which I'm I'm also I'm, I'm loving that with Glee, um, and also you <laughs> you played golf for the first time ever last week at Wentworth. Not the first time at Wentworth, ladies and gentlemen. He played golf for the first time ever, comma at Wentworth. What's that about? Yeah, well, uh, Rob, Robin, uh, we're doing Robin Ron versus, and so we're looking into golf. Rob has been playing. Uh, Rob Beckett's been playing golf for the for the year. He's he's taking it up this year. <laughs> so um, so all his Insta stories are full of golf bits. <laughs> And um, so we decided to do this show. We were looking to golf, but I've never played golf. I've only ever played crazy golf. I'm the, you love crazy golf. Love, love crazy golf. Which is love. not at all like real golf. No, I know. I'm aware of that. Uh, they're fewer like dinosaurs and stuff, right, in real golf. Well, uh, you go on the European tour. But anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So then we, did, we went to Wentworth um, and um, I started practising. And uh, we went onto the driving range with the pros on the training day, and then 
Uh, the training day. Yeah. Right. So the day before the tournament started. Tournament? Yeah. They they, they had a driving range. Is this at the PGA? The BMW yeah. PGA? Yeah, yeah. You were there? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So hang on. So, let's go again. So you played golf for the first time uh, last week, comma. Sorry, first time, comma, last week, comma, at Wormwood, comma, in the BMW PGA European Tour Championship. Yes, yeah. So, nice. Yeah, so we're there for the training day. We, we were at the driving range. And then somebody from the tournament came out to have a word because we kept on sending balls into the trucks to the right-hand side of the driving range, right. which is understandable. I've not played before. It's usually where you get the balls from. Correct, yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, Justin Rose came out to give us a few pointers. And then we did the tee-off challenge from the first tee at, uh, at Wentworth. What's the tee-off challenge? Well, it was just me versus Rob on the first tee yeah. to see who hit the, the best shot. I don't even know the You jargon. mean the longest drive? That's the one, yeah. It's not called the tee-off challenge. Well, we were calling it the tee-off. I was calling it the tee-off challenge. <laughs> it's called the longest drive, nearest the pin, all that vernacular. Right, so we were doing the longest, yeah, the longest drive. Yeah. 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 Which, it went out on Sky Sports, that. So I, I, I'm not spoiling it, by, by, but there is a, there's some contention about the result because Rob hit it further than me. But he was out of bounds. Yeah, and no, it's got to stay on the fairway. Okay, well there you go. That's the that's in the that case, of the In that case, track. I'm the winner. Congratulations. Thank you. How does it feel? Feels great. Feels really, really so good. So you and golf, you're going, going to get married now? I love. I, I, well, I can see how it's addictive because I, I think maybe three in a hundred of the shots I, I took, I made a sweet connection, and that is enough. It felt good. Well, it doesn't feel anything, does it? When you hit the ball perfectly, you can't feel a thing. No, but but what I wasn't expecting is that every time you take a swing, you've got to remember like 18 things about what to do with your body. And, you know, I ended up sort of saying these weird mantras as I was going into the swing, but you always forget some key thing. Left arm straight is an issue. I, I, I can't. That's not a great mantra either. It doesn't flow, does it? Left no. arm straight, left arm straight. No. Um... Yeah, it doesn't look good. Because the, 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 the best one is like Cindy Crawford. What does that... Is that to give you the rhythm of yeah, it? Cindy Crawford. Oh, I wasn't told that. Well, you were with the wrong people, my yeah. friend. Yeah, I mean, you, I'll try you that. You were with these guys, Kate Bush. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was with the Kate Bush guys. I mean, it's nothing wrong with being Kate, with Kate Bush, but no. the Kate Bush crowd, forget it. No, absolutely. In terms of a golf swing, not helpful. Kate Bush, boom, boom. Yeah. So Rob's into golf. Rob's into golf. He's got, has he got the bug? He's got the bug, but he is not as good as I'd been led to believe. I mean, he By is, him. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Mostly. Yeah, he is, he is shit. Uh, but, but better than me. See, it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, there was Tarby and Brucey and there was Around with Alice and there's pro-celebrity golf, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. And, and, you know, all the young angles, oh, one of the old fogies playing golf for. But now the young fogies are becoming the, the, the celeb golfers. Yeah, I, want, I, I actually sort of... I said to Rob, I wondered if it was a social mobility thing for him because Rob loves turning up at places that his profile has allowed him to access that he wouldn't have otherwise been able to, you know? And so, you know, the idea, I think for Rob, it's as exciting to be playing golf as it is to the thought of the other people at the golf club seeing Rob Beckett arrive, you know, sort of. I think that's, I think that's part of what, what draws him to it. But Wenworth is the place for that because it's seen so many come and go over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, while we were there, there was this whole controversy about because I was I was asking him about the you know the clothing rules and the behaviour regulations and you know you mean how, the etiquette the etiquette yeah how stuffy it all is, and then while we were there there was this big kickoff about uh, Tyrrell Hatton's um, his hoodie you know he was wearing a hoodie for yeah. the 
And that was, a, a, and it was very divisive, that. And I found all that very interesting. Was it frowned upon from a great height? Well, it, yes, it was. It was, it was, it was uh, a lot of people saying this is the game's gone mad. You know, it's sort of the game's gone mad people yeah, yeah. Were, were out in force. But then there was equally, there was another group of people that said this is exactly, this is exactly the reason why people don't take up golf because people kick off about stuff like this. And it's exactly the sort of thing we should be embracing. So... It was. Uh, it wasn't unanimous that it was a bad move. People liked it, but it was. It was controversial. So um, this is part of Rob versus Ramesh. Oh, sorry, yeah. no, it's not Rob versus Ramesh. I always say that, and here's a qu that's because that's my question. Yeah. Was it ever going to be Rob versus Ramesh, or was it always Rob and Ramesh versus? No, it was. It was always Rob and Ramesh versus. But then within the show, it started to become a bit of Rob versus because we always do a We always do some sort of challenge at the end of the show where we're against each other. Yeah. Yeah. But it was always us immersing ourselves into a different... The thing is, it started as a one-off because Rob is a boxing fan and so we were looking at this Anthony Joshua fight and so they asked me to go along as a, as a relative boxing novice and it was supposed to be a one-off. But because we had so much fun doing it, they said, you want to do a few more? And then it sort of took off from there. It's like one of those nice things. Isn't that lovely when everybody's trying to pitch their, you know, their dream idea or banging on doors or trying to get meetings and you go, oh, yeah, we'll do some more. Yeah, yeah. It seems to go all right. Isn't that lovely? I remember those days, Ramesh. Isn't that a lovely place to be in? It felt nice. Take yeah, me back nice. there again. What, what is, how does it feel? Come on. I used to be that kid. <laughs> um, I used to come with the golden child. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm the cesspit. <laughs> I'm just a stinky kid. But the problem is, though, is that so many, so many people uh, say to me, "Don't take this for granted," you know, and etc. And so you end up not kind of enjoy. You, you sort of go, "Well, this has happened this time, but it's not going to happen next time." You know, you have that par that ongoing paranoia. Do you know you're I mean? so at ease with it, right? Whilst talking to me about it and trying to bring me back down to some kind of um, um, self worth, sense of self worth, you use the word etc. <laughs> in the middle of it. You can't, it's like, you can't etc. this. This is my past you're talking about. It's your golden present, your platinum future. And you go, oh, well, you know, etc. I'm so sorry to dismiss it with an etc. I didn't oh. mean to. I'm so sorry, How mate. Often do you, are you an etc. guy? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a tail off guy, I know that. Oh. Uh, I'm a mumbler. I'm, a, I'm somebody who, in the middle of saying something, loses faith in the idea that I'm expressing and sort of tries to fade out like the end of a pop song. You know, I do that a lot. Uh, so I apologise for that. But that's why people, a lot of people like you for that. You know, um, my mate Ali, she, 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 uh, we all love you, Ron. We fucking love you. Mate, Seriously, we do, we do. I mean, it's, I'm fanboying. I'm massively fanboying here. <laughs> fanboying. Fan granddaddy, whatever <laughs> you want. I am a granddad, you know. Are you? Yeah, two, two grand, grandchildren. What's being a granddad like? Great. Yeah. So I, it's a no-lose. I saw a side of my dad that I'd never seen before when, when we had kids. He just became... Yeah, I just thought I just he would just became very very sort of gushy and lovey dovey. And How did that make you feel? It was great. I mean, I loved it. I mean, I, I'm really grateful that I got to see that because he was great with us as well. But he was away a lot and stuff. And 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 uh, uh, and so when we had our first child and I saw how he was around him, I sort of thought I've I've not seen my dad like this before. It's, it was it was amazing, man. It was really good. 
See, because we had a chat the other day and, um, you know, I say, you know, I get it. I get it. You talked about your discomfort around money mm. and then, you know, you, you spend a few, few quid on your family uh, because you really, really want to. But then because of your own paranoia, you start you start saying how everything, how much everything costs to your family whilst they're spending it. And that was all a bit awkward. And I said, I get it. I get it because I'm from where you're from. But of course, I forgot, you know, great review of your, your uh, memoir, Straight Outta Crawley. Uh, one of the great reviews was, you know, richest, richest to to rags to riches yeah because you were quite posh for a while yeah i was i mean it started off all very idyllic and uh you know i was at private school and um dad was doing well it was all good you know it, it was it was great actually and then just in a very short period of time uh, it all got turned upside down and so it was uh it just felt very very quick it's a weird one because i know that in the grand scheme of things what happened with us isn't that you know, isn't really bad, and people go through a lot worse than that. It felt apocalyptic at the time. You know, you sort of have this thing where you think your you think your parents' marriage is infallible, you think their financial situation is infallible, and you think that your life is set. You know, this is what my childhood is, and then in the course of a year, maybe less than that, all of that sort of went away. You know, my the house got repossessed. Uh, my mum found out that my you know my dad was uh, had been having this ongoing relationship with this other woman. And and then he went to prison, and that happened all very very quickly. And so then you're in, a, then we're we're staying in a bed and breakfast, like my brother, my mum, and myself all in one room, with my dad in prison. I mean that it just felt it felt I, I, I can't even explain how it felt. It felt it was mad. How, how old were you at the time? So that must have been I was like twelve, thirteen, something like that. Right, because kids are you know they are quite myopic, aren't they? You know mm. they don't really. They might know what's going on around them or know that they could know, but don't necessarily feel like they want to know. Yeah. But you weren't. So, I mean, it's don't get me wrong, it was a quantum shift. Yeah. But nevertheless, you were still, maybe 12, 13, maybe if you'd have been a bit younger, yeah. it would have been less traumatic or I experiential think, for you. I, I think so. It's just that kind of age where you're sort of aware of that sort of stuff. And, and also, is the, it was you're in denial about it as well. I was really in denial about my dad not loving or feeling like my dad didn't love my mum. That that was the biggest uh, shock for me. And I, and I remember for a long time, not really fair on my mum, but I, I su survived under the assumption that my mum was imagining it or she'd got it wrong. And then I and I thought that for a long time, and I and, and actually it made me almost side with my dad because I was thinking I don't know why Mum keeps saying this, you know. Yes, he's friendly with that woman, but nothing's going on, you know. That's what I was sort of running in my head. And then one day he, I don't think he realised it because he didn't know that I sort of was 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 sort of um, pretending to myself that he hadn't done anything. Then one day he said he admitted it. It wasn't even an admission. He just said it in a very matter of fact way. And he didn't know that, but it shattered, it shattered me. Like I was just like, oh my God, so all of this is true. It was, it was a horrible, horrible moment. So you were shattered then at the time or retrospectively, reflectively? No, at the time, I remember, I remember I was sat in the back of the car. My dad was in the front having an argument with my mum. And I can't remember the exact words he used, but he said something that sort of confirmed that, you know, he'd been sleeping with this woman. And it, it was at that point, I was like, oh shit, this is real. This actually, he has been having a relationship with this woman. And then what that does is that, that now means that everything my mum said was true. So my mum was telling me that he'd been wanting to set up with this other woman and leave my mum and us in a house somewhere so that he could go off and live another, you know, all of that. So you sort of, so that everything my mum has said has been true. So then you sort of retrospectively go, oh, that must have been, that's true then, that's true. So he was wanting to go and go somewhere else. So, you know, you sort of have, you, you process all of that. So did that make you more concrete with your mum then? 
Yeah, I mean, yes, 100%. And then also the fact that I was seeing my mum, you know, cry herself to sleep a lot. And she, like, you know, she went through a lot. She, she, took, she, she got a job for the first time. She was doing cleaning jobs and stuff like that to, just to make ends meet and was single-handedly bringing my brother and myself up. That has stayed with me. You know, I would do anything for her, you know, and, and I know a lot of people say that about their mum, but she's like a, one of my heroes, you know, for, for what she went through and what she did. I'll never forget that. And was it this trauma, Ramesh, that drove you to tell racist jokes as a small child at Butlins? <laughs> That's not fair. It's Pontins. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, it might was it, have Was been. it Pontins? It was Pontins. See, yeah. Pontins was always the posh version of Butlins in our house because we went to Butlins and we aspired to go to Pontins. Is that true? I thought it was the other way around. Well, I know. Maybe it's whichever way around it isn't for you. It's the opposite. Right. But anyway, so, so when was that... Pre your dad, mum and dad pre, breaking up? That was pre. That was pre. I was like eight or nine or something. And I was really into stand-up. I was really into comedy in general. And um, there was a talent contest at Pontins. And I entered as a stand-up. And I wrote, I think I wrote a couple of my own jokes. I decided to deliver it all in an accent because I thought it would give me, it's funnier. And um, I wrote one or two of my own jokes. But the rest of the jokes I took from a joke book uh, called Three, The 3001 Jokes. And a lot of those jokes were just really anti, it was just about Irish people being stupid. I didn't think anything of it. I just thought it was funny. And so I started doing this material. And then, uh, and then when I look back and I realised I've done, I mean, now I'm talking to you, it was a horrendously racist set. I, I don't stand by it, the content of it. Of course you don't. By the I way, want to be absolutely crystal clear. This is clear not news that. night. I want to be absolutely yeah. crystal clear. I want to distance, I distance myself from what happened at from Pontins. Your, your racist eight year old. <laughs> Yeah. megalomanic, yeah. egomaniac, fame-seeking stand-up routine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long did it last for? Uh, what, the racism? Yes. <laughs> the routine, you idiot. Uh, the routine, maybe like five, ten minutes, something like that. Did you learn the jokes or did you read them out of the book? No, I read. I learned them. I learned them. I learned them. Right. So uh, I'd memorised it. But the thing is, I'd read that book backwards. I mean, I knew all of the jokes off by heart, so I just picked my favourite ones. Uh, and then delivered it in a set. And then actually, weirdly, somebody somebody that my mum and dad had made friends with uh, at Pontins, they were sat at this table and I finished the competition and I went and sat down with them. And one of the guys said, uh, oh, I'm Irish. Did you know that, Ramesh? And uh, <laughs> it was my first sort of taste of kind of seeing the aftermath of, of saying something offensive on stage. Uh, and you remember it. What did you say to him? What did he want to say? What was the point of this? Of him saying that to he you? He was laughing as he said it. wasn't It wasn't. Uh, was, was he audibly Irish? No, no, he no. wasn't. So he might, he might have been making it up. He might have been just to make just me feel, feel uncomfortable. Like, yeah. How would you feel if I did some anti Sri Lankan stuff, eh, little boy? <laughs> would you like that? Um, but I remember. Yeah, he was saying it in a funny way. But um, but yeah, now I think about it, I probably shouldn't have done that. But, but although the, I won. But those talent competitions, yeah. But there are only three. Two people, because I've read the book. Uh, two girls, two, you and two girls, yeah? Yeah, correct. Okay. What, what did they do? What were you up against? I, can't, I think one of them sung a song and another one played a kazoo, I think, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and you said about the kazoo, at least it was all, all her own material. Yes, true, absolutely right, yeah. But I wonder if it was, or she was just really bad on the kazoo. Maybe, maybe it was unrecognisable, maybe she was, she was doing Michael Jackson or something. But those holiday camp talent competitions, I mean, they're so gorgeous, you know, they're so gorgeous. And at Ponds you had the blue coats, and at Butlins you had the red coats. And I just thought the red coats were like the greatest people oh, ever. Oh, mate. Ever. So, so good. It's, uh, 
like superstars. Yeah. yeah, so much so that we've 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 taken our children to Butlins like loads because of that, because of my memories of having. It felt like when I look back on that, we only went to Pontins once. Yeah. When I look back on that week, it just it's magical. Yeah, totally. It is just incredible. And then you go to Butlins, and and and. I sort of see it through my my kid. You know, there's so much stuff laid on for kids. It's just an it's just a feast for them, like activities and stuff. It's a, it's an amazing thing. I hope that they get from that what I got from Pontins. I remember like crying when we were going. I was going to say buckets of tears oh. on the Friday night, yeah, saying yeah. goodbye to all your mates. It was like because it's a miniature version of life. Yeah, up, it's mate, like this is totally. the end. This yeah. is it. this is Butlins, Butlins and Pontins have been designed by some kind of master or mistress of the universe to get kids ready for death. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that's what I've never been. I've never thought about it like that. Yeah. But yeah, and, and it's that thing of like, I remember my mum going, we'll come back, don't worry, we'll come back. And you think, well, and even as a kid, you think, well, it might not be the same people. My mates aren't going to be that I've made this week. Do you know what I mean? And also, I don't know if I believe you. And I was right not to trust her because we never went back. And it's a bit like a, a kid version of an affair. These are brand new mates. You've got no baggage with yeah, them. They're yeah. like the best mates ever. You, yeah. don't, you don't have to work this relationship out. No, and also, the other thing is, it's a reset button on people's perceptions of you. You know, you have this, you know, you have this thing at school. This is who I am. Yeah, yeah, I can be whoever I want. Yes, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> How good was that show, by the way? Yeah, great. great. One of the best. Did you watch the Cadini version? No, I didn't watch that. No. Kat came in the other day for a podcast. I didn't. Right. I only when she said could I remember her hosting it. Yeah. And it's because she hosted that that she got um, the big show in, in America. That she's oh, that right? She's sort of still doing. She did it for 19, yeah. 19 seasons for a show. Wow. That is big deal, mm. huge deal. Mm. My mum, um, you know, because Butlins for us was the posh holiday, you know, and I'm not pleading poverty here, but it really was because mm. it's all inclusive and it, you know we went for a week once, then we went for a fortnight. God, you know, I've never we've never done a fortnight. Did it did it stand up to a fortnight? Well, as a kid, yeah, you just yeah. go there for the rest of your life. <laughs> no, seriously, forget you getting on a plane again. Disney, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not this is not rose tinted spectacles. Yeah, yeah, this is this was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going yeah. to Butlins was amazing. You know, um, you know, an XRIF can by the sea. You know, but there was there was a pecking order of Butlins as well. Yeah. Because there was we went to Filey quite a lot, and uh, we went to Patheli. Patheli was sort of one up from Filey because it had a monorail. <laughs> oh, but then there was Great Yarmouth, which we never got to. Yeah. You know, and it was like, and then the brochure. You know, the the Butlins brochure. The better. The Butlins would be the more pages it was given. In yeah. my eyes, at least, that's what I was seeing. Yeah, yeah. But but Pontins was a whole different world. Yeah, it was. Well, I, I thought I, I'd always thought that Pontins was the 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 worst. Not the worst. I don't mean worst. How can it be worse? Yeah, it was the amazing. Poor, the poor cousin. The though. poor cousin. Yeah, I, I thought it was. But hence why we took our family to Butlins. I was like, Lisa, we're taking our kids to Butlins, and uh, it's still amazing. And like you know, like for, as an adult. You're sort of walking around going, well, it's it's fine, but you can see for the kids, it's like they just our kids yeah, just lose their minds. Well, you know, you and I, we met at this posh hotel once. Um, obviously, we've met before, but I'm just saying we re-met at this posh hotel once. Yeah. And one of the reasons the hotel we were at used yeah. used to used to not allow kids. Is that right? Yeah, five six years before, no kids allowed, and then it was sold, and the new owners had kids, and right. so they said. Okay, well, kids are now allowed, and it was, you know, it was a bit of an issue for a while. A few mm. bumps in the road, and then they made it bigger, and there were more kids, and then suddenly it became this really kid-friendly hotel. 
And one of the things that you know, because you've been there and I know because I've been there, is that the, one of the most successful things about that is the kids' club. Because the kids' club is 10 till 12 in the morning. So you get them for breakfast. It's great. You have the family time, face mm. time. And then um, I think it's 10.30 to 12.30. And then the pool's open for them as well. So mm. breakfast, pool open for the kids. Then kids' club, 10.30 to 12.30. And then kids' club again, 2.30 till 4.30, right? Because they're taking a, a, a page, a leaf out of the book of the playbook of Butlins. This is this is just a very, very posh, very, very brief Butlins going on. Yeah, here. I, 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 we didn't think about Kids Club actually before we went to the hotel because we we went away thinking we're going to have the kids with us the whole time and, and see what they do. We, we hadn't thought about Kids Club and it was them that said, well, we said, do you want to check out the Kids Club? And it was amazing because it's one of those rare things where they're having a great time. Yeah. And you're also having a great time. It's always, it's, you normally have to compromise on that, don't you? Either the kids have an amazing time or you do. Yeah. And never the twain shall meet or whatever. At, but at that hotel, it was great. We all had an amazing time. It was brilliant. Because Johnny Vegas is a big fan of Butlins as well. Is he? Massive. Are you, are you friends with Johnny? I'm not friends with him, but I love him. I think he's amazing. Right. Okay. I read his book. You've met him a couple of times. I've met him a few times. We've done Cat Stars Countdown. Yeah. Have, you, have you performed at Butlins since, obviously, since the racist eight-year-old period? No, no. My last gig <laughs> at a holiday camp was deeply racist. Because they have these weekenders, don't they? Yeah, and, and, and they're, um, they're, they're either really good gigs or terrifying, apparently, is what I've been told by mates that have done them. How are they terrifying? Because... You know, you go and do a gig and, and, you know, if the parents are on a booze, up, you know, there's a bit of release there. And I so see. They, it can be a bit difficult to ride. go either way. Yeah. You are, and even when they're going well, mm. you have gigs where they're going well and they're really laughing, but you feel like you're a hair's breadth away of this, of, of this getting away from you. Right. And that's what those are like. Ooh, yeah. What's that like as a comedian? It's, fri- it's, it's exciting because you think, if I can keep it right here, I'm, I'm going to have a brilliant show. How do you do that? It's it's a lot of it's it's lots of little decisions during this, you know, about how to pitch the material, how As far you're to push it. Telling one routine, thinking about the next one. Yeah, and thinking about your timing on it, and thinking about if you're going to go into the crowd or not. Because often, say for example, you know, a, a, a common thing is if if a gig is uh, if a crowd is quiet or a bit sort of tame, mm. you can sometimes go into the crowd to give them a bit of a lift or whatever, and sort of manage the energy that way. Well, actually, like Bono might. Not, no, not physically, going, oh, but so you know, you might, you might sort of just start interacting with them or whatever. Oh, I see. And sort of doing a bit of riffing and that sort of excitement of, of feeling like this is happening in the room just for us can sort of lift the energy. Um, but when you're doing a gig where you're right on the edge of that, you can do that because they, they start, they'll start shouting out. When, when the energy's like that, occasionally they'll shout out, but they're not even heckling. They're just, just excited and shout something out. And then your decision about how to manage that can make or break the gig. You, you either deal with that very quickly, get a laugh and move on, or you can have a bit of fun with it. But if you have too much fun with it, the rest of the crowd suddenly get the signal that this is an interactive gig and then, and then you're done. It's over. Because I went to see Frankie Howard a couple of times. Right. Right, and Frankie Howard used to make up hecklers. Do you know that one? No, I didn't know. So, so what, he, he had, did he have plants? No, he did, no, nobody even said anything. Oh, right. He just imagined they did, pretended they did, and did... So what was that? I, I, I'm what? Am I? And then he'd say whatever it was he wanted the heckler to have said. Yeah. And then he'd do a, give a killer line back to the heckler. And, right. And anybody else want to go? Well, frankly, nobody said anything. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but it really. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I've never done that. I've never done that. Malcolm Hardy was the best, though, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Tell yeah. people about Malcolm Hardy. Well, he was just. 
uh, he used to work at. Um, he used to run it. He used to run this co- this comedy club, and and he uh, was just pr- he was properly anarchic, and that sort of he was as alternative as alternative comedy can get. Do you know what I mean? And he. People were scared, you know, other acts were scared of him. He would say, this next person might be shit. And, you know, he would do all sorts of, you know, he wouldn't, he didn't, he didn't obey the rules at all. It was all very sort of, it was fully exciting. It's, he's one of those acts, he was one of those people that he would either absolutely blow the roof off so that people were just, or it would be like a hostage situation, you know. It was so unpredictable in a way that a lot of comedy isn't now. I mean, it was a proper... Anarchist. So he ran up the creek in Greenwich, which is still, which is still, well, it's sort of carried on having that reputation for. And when I started doing stand up, because up the creek, when he ran up the creek, it was, it was crazy. And then when I started comedy, which was what 10, 11 years ago, um, it still had a bit of a reputation for being, you know, it's a bit of a, a tasty gig, quite yeah. Funky. And you, you know, a lot. If you could, you know, the, it used to be if you could, if you could do a set up the creek and not get booed off, yeah, or injured, or injured, yeah, you're probably doing something right, you know. Malcolm's uh, thing wasn't he? The best way he used to deal with hecklers, he would leave the heckle sometimes, and um, then hope or, or put a spell on the guy. Always a bloke, always a bloke, nearly yeah. always a bloke. Yeah, um, it's, it's safer if it's a bloke, right? If this bit is, by the way, and uh, he used to wait for them to go to the loo, and then he'd just walk over the table and, and dip his manhood in their drink, and say to everybody, "Don't fucking tell him." Yeah, I don't, yeah, I haven't done that. Um, if it all shows going really badly, though, I'd consider it. Oh, but also, you've got to have the option of, you know, being able to. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean that's that's the other that's it's the that, other, isn't that's it? the other issue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's whether part that's, of it. That's part of it. He whether, just wants to say, look, look what I can do. Yeah. If I, yeah. he probably paid the guy to heckle. He's probably yeah. in, and then just so he could say, look, look, yeah. look, I can do this if I wanted to. I can do that. Could you do that? I couldn't. No. Shot glass. Yes, possibly. 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 Yeah. Possibly. Uh, so gigs, right? Have you done a cruise ship? No, not done a cruise ship. Okay, uh, I know you've done some corporate gigs. Yeah. Now, uh, corporate. Do gigs... you do corporate stuff? Well, here we go. So corporate. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, oh my god, I'm gonna faint. I've gone cold. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so a lot of corporate gigs for people listening, you may have been to some, but um, many of them take the manifest as award shows. So industry award shows for things like, for me, um, for example, at the Grosvenor House Hotel, the main room, 1,700 people, yeah, all um, black tie, the Butchers and Drovers Association. Drovers? Yeah. The Butchers and Drovers Association, which right. is basically... The, the meat um, the world. The meat world, right, yeah. okay. Butchers and drovers. You drive them. Oh, you I dro- see, okay. You drive okay. the cattle through. Right, but this you. was like thousands of years ago. Yeah. But they're still called the butchers and drovers. And I was paid in money and bacon. Nice. And um, a butcher or a drover, a master butcher and or master drover, is responsible for the awards each year. And if it's your awards, you want them to be the best. And the year that I was asked to do it, um, I think his name is Danish, Mr. Danish of Danish Bacon. Right. Or a Dane. I think he was the man, he was the Dane who was in charge of the Danish Bacon Company. He's the big cheese, sorry to mix metaphors, Mm. in the bacon world. All non-vegan, this. this Yeah, I know. Don't worry, don't worry. This is why I'm too unplant-based now. This may be the reason (laughs) for it. I've only just realised that. (laughs) And, um, And he just paid through the notes for everything. 
Right. He just wanted the best of everything. But then so he, got... he just wanted to show that he could get you to come and do these awards. Yeah, right? the, the books for this awards did not have to balance because everybody's got to pay for a table. Right, 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 right. And so, so I was asked to to host the awards, um, uh, but Ronnie Corbett was also booked. Okay. Right to do ten minutes. Yeah. Because they knew I wasn't funny. So, do... right. <laughs> but you are funny. No, no, no. But I'm not funny like that. I'm not funny like you, for example. You know, and I know you've had a nightmare with gigs like this because you do feel like you've got this lovely riff in your book about selling your soul and 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 because it's it, people won't get you do get paid a, a small fortune for these gigs yeah, but you unless you need the cash it's not worth it I totally, it's horrible I totally it's, agree with you I think about it for days before for, you know I used to I don't do them anymore I will not do them anymore and you know I used to from the second I said yes whether it was three months before three days before three it's never three days before three weeks before it used to dominate my thoughts yeah. I used to feel ashamed of myself sick yeah. by the way they're not bad people no right no I don't know why this is by the way why we're sort of inflicted with this particular thing um uh, condition. It's a condition. It's a. Mm. It's a. It's a condition. And um, and then you do them. Well, you wait at the hotel all day. You go to the sound check, right? In lapel, and you go to the back of the room. Then you see the awards. And they're like forty-two awards. Yeah. And the thing about award shows is, as they go on, less and less people are interested in what you're saying because yeah. they know they've not won anything. Yeah. It's and all freight. You can see the crowd oh! leave. And sometimes it's like sometimes you've got Robbie Williams to come yet, and nobody cares. And they're paying Robbie Williams like half a million pounds a verse. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I know. So, and by the way, I didn't have any jokes. And they used to say, well, he wasn't very funny. I'm not a comedian. I'm a radio and TV show host. But I'd, I'd, I'd always assumed it was easier for you, for people, you know, the, the, the people that do what, not that ev- you anyone people, does what you, you do. For you people without jokes. No, but what I mean is you're, 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 you're not a comedian, but you are funny. So then if you're a comedian, you're yeah. booked to be funny, right? Yeah, so yeah. if you then are funny, you yeah. go, okay, you did what you're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you say something funny, people go, holy shit. Like we, this wasn't what we even booked Chris for, but he has got, He's got the humour. I don't know why I use that phrase, but you know he's got it. So <laughs> he's got the humour. Yeah, that's what people say when something's. He's got the humour, man. He has got the humour. It's airborne. He's got it. <laughs> Stay away from him. <laughs> he's got the humour. <laughs> he's going to have to self-isolate. Oh, don't worry. He's doing a good job of that already. Uh, have you heard about Chris has got the humour. No, he's got. He's got the humour. He's got the humour. Yeah. No, but that's what I thought. I thought that people just go, "Oh my god." This guy's so funny. We didn't expect him well, to be. We didn't book him to be funny. Sometimes it was right, sometimes it wasn't. Mm. Um, but I did this. I, I did one for this particularly sober industry, which mm. is more sober than the butchers and drivers, who were actually quite a good laugh, to mm. be honest. Um, and I did this one for this other industry, and I won't say what it is, um, because it's too boring to say out loud. Um, one of the reasons. And it was, it was, it was, everybody bombed. Right. Right. Even the awards bombed. Even, you know, <laughs> Even people winning things wasn't good. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And about three months later, uh, I was having, uh, I think I was having dinner with Parky at his pub. And um, we got onto, the, we had this kind of conversation that we're having now about, about corporate dues and mm, award mm. dues. And uh, I said, I said, oh, t- I said, he said, do you do them? I said, yeah, he said, oh, they pay well, don't they? I said, yeah, well, they do pay well. That's the, why else would you do them? Yeah. You know? And I said, but I had a bit of a sticky night the other night. And I told him which one, you know, he said, oh, I did that one. <laughs> Oh my God, how bad was it? I said, no, it's terrible, it's terrible. He said, but I've got to tell you, somebody texted me about after you did it. They said, you killed. I went, really? He said, no, no. apparently you were much better than it's ever been. And it was like being at your own funeral as far as I was. And apparently that was a really good year. It's so weird, isn't it? I, I had a really, I, I don't know if there's, I, I didn't do anything about this, but I did, it did make me reflect on my general demeanour. 
because I was doing a corporate in Manchester and it was this typical thing. You, you go and do the sound check and then you go and chill out in your hotel room and then they come and get you for the actual gig, right? And, and the problem with that is, is it's often a nice hotel. You often get yourself very comfortable in the hotel room and then all of a sudden you think, oh shit, I've got to go and do this yeah. thing that I've been doing. You're watching dreading. the one show. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then you're like, oh Christ. So then, um, so they, they, they come to get me and as she, she comes to the hotel room, the, 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 I don't think it was a booker, it's one of the people involved in the company I was doing the awards for. She comes to get me, and as we're walking to, the, they're taking me a secret way because I'm a surprise booking, right? So they're taking me through this back, this back <laughs> thing, and she's briefing me on it. And I was like, yeah, okay, okay. And then she goes to me, can I just ask you a question? I said, yeah. And she goes, do you even want to be here? And I said, sorry. She goes, it's just I'm talking to you about this, this show. She goes, you just, everything about you is like you don't want to be here. And I thought, wow. I thought to myself, oh, shit, I've really let slip here because I really don't want to be here. I'm just doing it for the money. But... Um, she then goes, you know, if you don't want to be here, that's fine. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. This is just how I am. This is just sort of my energy. I, I, I said, I, I am, I am happy to be here. Uh, it's just, this is just how I am. And from that, she was just so off with me for the rest of the thing. But the pressure then I, ha I felt on me to try and rip this gig, which are, I would say, for the most part, unrippable. You know, it's there's <laughs> occasionally the stars will align and you'll have a good one, but they are so rare. Yeah. I, I remember doing one for this car company. They had this, uh, this uh, away weekend. It was like a reward weekend. So they're laying on entertainment, DJs, comics and stuff like that. So I was on the last night. The, the intro the guy gave me, I, I mean, I know he was trying to be nice, but it was way too big for what? Yeah, yeah. They must have been expecting Seinfeld the way he introduced me, right? I come out just tucked into a big plate of shit for 25 minutes, right? But you've got to do your time because you've been booked for your time. I, I had a, a tour, my tour manager with me. I came off stage. I said to him, I can't believe you're not already in the car. Let's get the fuck out of here, right? <laughs> so we start running through this hotel to try and leave. We get lost. We end up coming to where the audience are coming out of the room. Just as I hear somebody going, I mean... He was unbelievably shit, wasn't he? And then our eyes made contact. We both realised what had happened, that I knew that he was talking about me, and he realised he'd been caught. And we just made this silent agreement. We weren't going to mention it. And then I just left into the night. It was, it's just, they're just horrible. And the fact that you saying they're not worth it, I, it's such a weird, I have such a weird relationship with them because you like to think, you know, you do think, I like to think, we're very lucky to get paid what we get, what we get paid to do what we do, but I want to do things that I think are good, creatively, that I think I would stand by, do you know what I mean, that I'm proud of. You do a corporate, you're not, do, I'm not doing that thinking this is going to artistically enrich me or I'm going to create and put something into the, into the universe that's good. It's not about that, it's purely about the paycheck. And that feels horrible, right? But then equally, I think to myself, if I think about how much I used to get paid for teaching, do you know what I mean? It's all, it almost feels ignorant to go, I'm not going to do this despite the fact you're... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's no, such I, a weird... I know exactly what you mean. It's very hard to talk about it to yeah. people, and people listening who haven't experienced it. But I agree with you 100% because you feel, you feel less for it. You yes. know, and the money doesn't compensate for that, and you know that's easy to say for us too. Blah blah blah. Yeah. But it just you just feel you just feel really sick to your tummy on the way home. Yeah. And you yeah. get up the next day. It takes you a couple of days to get over it. Yeah. Do you it, do, so you don't do them anymore. I try. I tell, no, I tell. I got three to. next week. <laughs> Have you really? <laughs>
No, I, I, I don't do them. I don't do them. I have, I, I did, I did one. I, I, did, I, I have done a couple recently, just because I sort of thought I'd dip my toe in, but I hadn't done one for months before uh, that. I, I don't. I, if I ever do that again, you know, I can't pay the bills anymore. Yeah. Well, the, but the, but the thing is though, is when I started doing comedy and I started getting offered those, I mean, it felt incredible. Oh, of course. I, oh my course. God, mate. I mean, like. I was just, I would, I would I'd like to say to Lisa, I think this email's wrong. I, I can't believe this. Like, can we, I'm going to phone them and double check. I'm going to double check because I'm not worth that. This is crazy. No, nobody is. But that's how much they have to pay to get people to do it anyway. Yes. Uh, you touched on Seinfeld there. Have you seen him live? I've not seen him live, no. But I tell you what I re-watched recently is The Comedian. Have you seen that? Um, don't think I have. It's on, I think it's on Netflix, but it's, um, it's a film from years ago, maybe late 90s or something. Seinfeld had binned off all of his material. It's a documentary film. Oh, no, from I have seen it. I have seen it. Yeah. My God. It's so good. He man. begins to rebuild. He begins to rebuild. Yeah. Goes you back see, to the first club. Yeah, you see him work in the clubs. He goes to the store. You see him talking to like Chris Rock and his other comics. And his other comic uh, is Orny Adams, I think, who's he's just starting. And um, he's so uh, ferociously ambitious. And the dynamic. That they sort of contrast Jerry Seinfeld's journey through through putting this show together with 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 Orny. It's an amazing. I mean, I like you know Seinfeld is is one of the best. So, it, but to see him sort of working that stuff up and 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 going from scratch as a comic, it's a it's a it was so lovely. To yeah, watch. it must be so special for you as a comic because I love it anyway. Yeah, yeah. And the thing about Seinfeld is he makes it look so easy. I know. It's it's it's. It's like a it's like it's like a Rolls Royce of comedy or something, you know. It's like it's so beautiful, and and also it, it's to see somebody at that level take those risks because when you're doing a new material gig, you know, when you're working up new material, you write this. You write, I, I tend to do it in you know, as I've said to you before, I'll go to this theatre down the road from me in Crawley and, and and work up stuff. But a lot of times I'll go and drop in into clubs unlisted a new material night and I go, this is 10 minutes of stuff I wrote today and you try it, right? And that feels horrible. You don't lose, if, if stuff doesn't work, you don't get used to it. You do not get used to it. it, when, it when something dies on its ass, it feels horrible. You feel the tension in the room, it feels rank. And so you're always making, you're always walking that line of how much of a risk am I going to take today, right? And, and a lot of the time when you're doing new material gigs, you'll hear somebody before you killing it, right? Absolutely like ripping the gig. And you think to yourself, there's the ego in ego, you ego. that goes, I need to go and show that I can go toe-to-toe with this person that's on before me. But if I do that, I'll go home having wasted the evening because I've not learned anything about stand-up. I've not learned anything about this new material. So I have got to be prepared to go and die on my ass because it's like going to the gym. You have to do it. And and in the past, I've made the wrong decision and thought, no, nah, I don't want these people walking out thinking, like, I'm shit. I'm going out there, I'm going to smash it. And you go and do stuff that you know works and everybody laughs and have a great time. And you go, why have I left my wife and kids at home for the evening for, for that? For no money. For this sort, of, <laughs> this sort of wank on stage for my, for my own kind oh, of self-satisfaction. It's so stupid. So now I, ne- I, pro- I make the promise to myself, I'm never going to do that again. If, they, if that audience walk out going, he was easily the worst on. I don't think he's got it anymore. I don't care. It's part of this journey I've got to get it's to. It's a more this. valuable night than the other night. A hundred percent. You've got to take the risks. You've got to take the risks. And then, you know, Kevin Bridges said it to me. He goes to me, he goes to me, you've got to see, you've got to see that as going to the gym. And, and he goes, and the tour is going on to the, is, is competing in the tournament. Yeah. And if you're at the tournament 
and you start regretting that you didn't put the hours in at the gym, you guess you'll never forgive yourself. Never. You know I mean? So you just got to go. This has got to be hard. Unless you, you unless you begin to not care, you know. And yes. I, I've been there, and that's not a good place to be. Does that happen? You, you felt like you just didn't. You just oh stopped. no, I did it for a couple of years. Yeah, you know, you just start going to go on a cruise, you know, uh, cruise control, and yeah. you, what you do is you start having such a great time, right. you know. You know, when you finished or before you started, sometimes during you, you know, and you just think this is so good. But, yeah. But that comes back to bite you for a good few years. Yeah. Bit of midlife trauma there, mate. <laughs> Let me tell you about that. So what is the biggest thing, the biggest lesson you learned, you have learned in your stand-up comedy career? Wow. Um, well, actually, career-wise, and this might not be true, but this is what I stand by and it stood me in good stead is that nothing is make or break no opportunity is the opportunity you know is 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 what i've kind of i used to go into things thinking this has to go really really well because if it doesn't i'm over or you know i'm not going to be able to do what i want to do and i've i've since come to the to the belief that that's bullshit i i think that you go and you try and do your best in every situation but if you start treating things as make or break, you can't be loose, you can't be as good as you otherwise would be. You've got to see it as it's about consistency. And so, you know, if I am if I go and do a, a panel show and I'm crap on it or whatever, I just have to swallow that. That doesn't mean my career's over, do you yeah. know what I mean? It means that I have, to, I have to regroup, I have to think about why that happened, think about how I could do it better the next time. And if those, if the, if that show doesn't want me back again, I have to accept that. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, uh, you know, that doesn't mean now suddenly I'm done for. Do you know what I mean? And so that's kind of what I've, I've tried to start taking in. I, I do think with comedy, giving less of a shit in a conscientious way is better. You know, it's that you're just better at what you do if you sort of are a bit more, a bit more relaxed about it. It just enables you to hit that, you know, to hit that level you just feel comfortable you're, you're doing things you're not trying too hard you know i don't i i hate the idea of being grabby you know and i think that if you go onto a thing and you think fucking this has to be i have to absolutely smash this this is like the thing you just be, you, you just come across as a bit too i just think you become a bit too needy you, you start playing outside the off stump for for laughs and stuff like that so yeah that it's that thing of nothing is the make or break opportunity i think i mean i had it i mean i i, I did mock the week and I did my first mock of the week. Had a had a had a really fun time. They were really buzzing about having me on. And then the second one, I was awful, right? Like I said something that like dropped an absolute stinker in the record. And normally when you're doing those shows, you you have that. You you do, you do, you do something that doesn't work, and you think, well, who cares? You know, like you go you go and you try again. They're going to edit it. That show on that second mock of the week, I said something that killed the room dead. It was crap. It was just like I dropped an egg in the room, and it shut me down. Mentally, I just dropped out the thing. I was like, oh, my God, that was shit. Dara thinks you're shit. The other comics think you're shit. The audience thinks you're shit. What the fuck are you going to do? If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, <laughs> it's probably a duck, yeah? <laughs> so I was, like, sitting there just um, going, oh, God, oh, God, the next thing you say better be funny, man. Because... Oh, no, 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 no. And, no. So, and so then the longer... I'm not, the longer it goes on, the longer I'm not talking and the more pressure is on the next thing that I say... Anyway, I said something like something just absolutely nondescript just to get myself back into the talking game. And then when I came off the came out of the studio, then my agent was there and she said to me, Are you all right? (laughs) 
<laughs> she goes, you were silent for about 45 minutes. <laughs> it was so bad. I mean, and then, but you know, I, t- I t- talked about this in my first book. The, the producer, Dan Patterson, phoned me up and he goes, what? <laughs> he goes, what happened, Ramesh? I said, I don't know, man. I said, like, I, I said something. It didn't land. I got the, I got the... I got scared and then I got nervous about talking again. And he said to me, look, we're going to get you back on. I just wanted, I just wanted to get in touch with you to say, we're going to get you back on. We do think you'll, you know, you'll be good on the show. It's just, you know, try not to do what you did on that last one. But, you know, I'm very grateful to him for doing that. But, um, but it felt the, I, the, the feeling of walking out of that Mott the Witch studio just, and then, you know, people are talking afterwards and you just feel like sick. And then you're in the car on the way home. That's, you feel sick. You go home. How'd it go, Ramesh? I don't want to talk about it. It was, it was horrible. It I was, was going to say, how long did that one last for? That, that funk? Oh, uh, like a month or something. It's, people don't get that either, do they? It's incredible. Oh. It's just incredible. And you think, I just don't want to do this anymore. Uh, Matt, I'd never want to do this again. Lisa, makes, Lisa said that to me, man. Because I, I, I've always had it. Even before I was doing, even when I started doing stand-up, if I had a gig that went wrong, or that, to my mind, went badly, I'd be devastated. I remember coming home from, like, it was open mic. I wasn't even getting paid. I was just doing a 10-minute spot to try out for a club, you know, because you do these 10-minute spots, and then the club decides whether they want to have you back for a 20-minute spot. And so I'd done this spot, and it had gone, to my mind, had gone terribly. I came home, I was sat, and I sat on the edge of the bed, and Lisa was asleep, or sort of, sort of asleep. And I was, I was sat on the edge of the bed with my head in my hands, just really so upset and she said to me you're right and I said oh, I just I, I just didn't get it right today the material wasn't right my delivery was shit I don't know if they'll invite me back and she said to me do you want to have a think about if this is what you want to do because why are you she said to me, why are you aspiring to do something that makes you feel like how you feel now she said it just feels weird to me and she was right because because at, at that point I felt like so horrible but the other side of that is when it goes well, it feels amazing. Do yeah, you know what I mean? That's, yeah, it does. That's but it. I mean, that's a drug for you, though, isn't it? Because yes. the point yeah. is, you know, you feel like, like I'm not overstating it. Emotionally, you feel like <sighs> death, and you think, okay, and all the good stuff that he brought to you before that, and all the good stuff you hope and you sort of know will come back in a couple of days or a couple mm. of weeks, even. It doesn't make up for how you think. No, it's not. I never want to feel like this again. And by if I never do this again, I, if I never do this for a living again, I will never feel like I do now again. Yeah. And you think, well, there's a deal. That, I, I take that deal now. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. But you come back for more. I know. I know. We and, can, one comes back for more. Yeah, I know. And I and I think that. Um, that's when you know that you sort of, you know, for stand up in particular, that's when I knew it, I had the bug because I was dying on my ass, uh, you know, on occasion and then thinking, I need to get back up on stage, you know. Um, Psychologically, I wonder if that is the thing about mortality with stand ups. Because stand ups, you are brilliant, brilliant human beings, but you are fucking strange. Yes. You know, <laughs> and because that feeling there, and that's self inflicted. Yeah. That yeah. is totally, I mean, you know, I do, I do, a, you can't. I can't really touch wood, do a, a, a stinker of a breakfast show. Because mm. I've always got a Beatles record to play, yeah, or the news yeah. to go to. Or, you know, I might have an off day, but it'll never be terrible. And some days I've, I think I've killed it. Maybe I haven't, maybe I haven't, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's always all right. You know, it's yeah. always all right. I hope it's never mediocre, but it's. I never feel like that. I have felt like that. I've definitely felt like that. You know, when I did TFI, it was not dissimilar. You know, because the pressure was, and it was live, and it was it was six hours, sorry, six days and twenty three hours of not doing it, and one hour a week of doing it, and that one hour it loomed, it loomed, from the minute the end credits had gone off Channel Four on the Friday night. So just talking about it now, seven o'clock. I thought, thank God for that, because now, right now, it's the longest time till I've got to do it again. 
right? And I love that show. Yeah, I mean, but, and what an incredible show. Yeah, it must have been amazing I'm not to be going, oh. Yeah, that's not why I'm going there. But, but I know what it feels like, because you do a stink and you think, because radio shows three and a half hours a day every day, for me anyway. Yeah. You know, stand up for you. You might not get booked again. You might have to write new material again. Right. It was going really well in Crawley. It doesn't go to, doesn't, you know, doesn't travel well to yeah, wherever it may course. well be. Uh, but, and I wonder, because when you feel like that, you know, that is emotional death. You have just experienced emotional death. Mm. Do you think that, the, the, what, what is a comedian's, you know, all generalizations are dangerous, right? But generally, what is a comedian's mindset? What would be the signature mindset of a comedian? What drives you to, to be as good as you are and as, as potentially self-destructive as you could be? It's a really, it's a really good question. I mean, sort of, I've always, I've always said to, we've, I've had discussions with comic friends of mine about how narcissistic the pursuit of, of being a great stand-up is, or being as good as you can, because it's a, it's a, it's a form of entertainment where you require the audience to tell you they love you by laughing frequently, you know, and yeah. and like you know. You're going for that high laugh rate of, of of them constantly going. Yes, we 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 like this. We're enjoying this. We're enjoying this. We're enjoying this. You know that that you have to have that. And so, you know, I feel like I'm nowhere near the stand up I want to be. Nowhere near. And every single time I write a bit of stand, I think it's got to beat what I've done before. I write a show, it's got to be better than the one I've done before. And I don't know whether that is because I want the buzz of it going well. Or because I'm terrified of the horrible feeling you get when it doesn't go, you know that 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 sort of that knowing that what you're doing isn't as as good. I do think you're right. Stand-ups are wired differently. There's something about the it is like a drug sort of relationship, you know that sort of relationship with audiences. And you, you see comics when they come off stage when something's gone really well, when a show's gone really well, and it's they're like fucking wired, man. It's like it's it's an incredible thing to see but I do agree with you I think there's something so self-destructive about chasing that it's it's such a it's it's a really weird you know you can t you can feel so down about it and then you know I've chatted to comics who've said because that's your job the danger is when when it's going well you start to lose that buzz because that's what you're supposed to do so you go and do a tour show that's great and it, the crowd have a great time and you come off and you go Okay, well that that got away with that, but you still feel the horrible low of if it doesn't go well. Do you yeah, that yeah. doesn't that doesn't raise up. So it's uh, it's a difficult one to 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 sort of figure out, man. But I do think that there is something different about the wiring of a lot of comics. I do think that. I would imagine when you get that laughter rolling, you know, that you, when you get five ten minutes and they, the audience are literally dying, crying, dying with laughter, as opposed yeah. to you dying on stage, the yeah. opposite. The audience is dying as opposed to the comedian, which is yes. an interesting sort of di dynamic anyway. Yeah. But you, I must imagine you feel immortal. Oh, it's, it's th there is, you know, like uh, jazz musicians talk about being in the pocket and stuff, you know, you hear all of that kind of things. There are times when you're doing, well, whenever you're doing a gig or a, a tour show, whatever, there are periods of time where you just hit this sweet spot and the audience are like losing it and you feel like for those for that period of time i could say anything here and it's you know like it's just coming you, you're not even writing the jokes in your head you it's know you're riffing through you. it, exactly and and so you're saying stuff and after you reflect on you think i don't even remember thinking that thing. you know i don't remember the journey of that from my mind to my it's just it's just there yeah. 
but that doesn't happen all the time. But it's an amazing feeling when it does. And is it, might it also be because if you know what it's like to die on stage, and mm. I don't know that. I mean, I've had pretty, you know, I've had some nadirs in the business, you know, to do with shows not working and things like yeah. that. So I've got, I've had the sick feeling, yeah. but not eyeballing, you know, six hundred people, a few thousand people who've paid to see me with jokes, and I'm supposed to be any good, by the way. Yeah, you know. Do you think it makes it makes dying in real life easier? Is that the deal? Is that you know <laughs> just a series of preparations yeah, for a, death? What if it's that? It might be, man. I don't know. It's it's because there's nothing you can do about really dying. No. But you could have you could have you could have diverted death on that night by being any better. Yeah. So so you know maybe I, it's that. I, 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 it's like. like when you say it like that, it's, I feel so self-conscious about the fact that people sort of listening to this might think, I can't, I, I don't get how he, they're, they're pacing, pacing so much kind of uh, emotion into this. But like, I'll give you an example. I was doing, when I did my last tour, like Hammersmith Apollo, the event in Apollo, whatever you want to call it, is an iconic venue for stand-ups, right? You know, obviously live at the Apollos there and stuff. And the idea that you might go and do a tour show there, that people will cut, fill that venue to come and see you is like a dream, right? So on my last tour, for the first time, I was doing dates at the Apollo. It felt incredible, right? And I'd, and, and I'd, had, to, I'd had to push that show. So I'd done live at the Apollo. I'd done stand-up on various bits of TV. And I was in the middle, I think I was on the, the second night of my Apollo, of four nights I was doing at the Apollo, right? And I was buzzing. Every night I was rolling out and I go, I can't, that's my name on the, this is like absolutely buzzing my tits off. Go into the venue. And I do the first half of my second night, first show gone great. Did the first half of my first show, right? And then I sat in the in the dressing room in the interval and I just looked on Twitter and somebody said, at the Apollo for Romeshranger, this is shit. I feel like I've heard all this before, right? And I cannot the room, I'm not exaggerating. The room felt like it was melting, man. Like I just fucking like I was just like, oh my god, oh my god! It, I just felt it felt like an out of body experience. And then I had to go out and do the second half of the show. I go out and do the second half of the show, and my friend, like I had friends there, and my agent was there, and they're saying to them it looked like I was having a good show, right? In my head, all I thought about, all I could think about, was there's one person in there who might, if they've not left already, just sitting there going, this is shit, this is shit. And then he'll be talking to the... Uh, this is how it plays out in your head. He'll tell people around him and they go, yeah, this is shit, isn't it? And then gradually that, you know, and that sort of spreads through the crap. You know, that's how you sort of, you sort of like seeing it like that. And then I went off stage. There, there were drinks afterwards because there's some guests that come to say, I couldn't fuck, like I'm talking to people. I'm thinking, fuck this. I need to get the, I need to get out of here. Like it was... Like my vision was blurry. I, I, it was horrendous, man. And just that's because I suddenly thought what I'm doing is shit or I'm, you know, this person had got to this one tweet had got to me. It was a horrible, horrible feeling. That, it, it, it's, it's just insane. I, I don't experience anything else where like it. Your biochemistry has gone mad. That's yeah, right. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's a mental thing. It's an emotional thing, but it's biochemical. And the thing is, you know, when you mix adrenaline with any other chemical or any other usual normal biochemistry it really messes with it yeah. so you know again after live shows you have a you have a lager or a glass of fizz or whatever good luck with that because that's going to mess with you yeah. you know you can go out all day every day to Hampstead or wherever you want on a yeah. or go around Greenwich you know for a, to a few pubs you yeah. have a, you have a couple of pints of lager after a live television show and it was it was a, a banging live television show yeah. you are 
you are you are in a cat an Uber about forty five <laughs> minutes after that because you are done because just you you. You're not normal. You're not a normal totally, human being. Totally. You're, you're vibrating at a different yeah. frequency. You know, you got adrenaline. You got cortisol going on. You got hypertension. <laughs> you got you. You know, it's like why can't I see? So all these wrong. Because the thing about your great thing about the brain, you know, the premeditation of the brain. So we premeditate situations. Uh, and we post-meditate situations and we meditate on the present. And if, you know, the, the thing about your brain is your brain is a, is a manager for your body, for, for how your body works. Mm. And you prepare your brain, you prepare your brain for what it's about to have to manage and budget for, you know. And so going on stage is a big deal, you know, especially as a stand-up, you know. Yeah. And you've been preparing your brain for that for years. Yeah, yeah. Since Butlins. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, oh, before. And that's not a joke. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so, and so you, your brain is so sure of itself, you know, you are a Spitfire pilot and you know where all the Luftwaffe are and you've got more bullets than them and you're not really a Spitfire, you're in a tornado and you've got a time machine and, you, and, and then, and then suddenly it goes, ha ha, but what about this? And it all comes crashing down I know. and be, and the panic that that instills because you were at such a, such a developed level, uh, you know, such an advanced level. It's, it's a, it's a pick and a poke, isn't it? It's yeah. a, it's a match to an oil well. It's yeah, it's a horrible. It oh, horrible. forget it. Yeah, forget it. And you're oh, anyway. Yeah. Let's talk about Dave Chappelle, shall we? <laughs> yeah, because sure. he is people who a lot of people won't know who Dave Chappelle is, right? Yeah. Dave Chappelle is currently uh, cited by any comedians who know anything about comedy as the most either brave or fearless comedian in the world. P pick your own description. Mm. Would you agree, Romic? I do. I think so. I mean, I, I think there there are people that. That are there or thereabouts. For example, I, I don't know if you know Bill Burr's stuff yeah. very well, but yeah. but Bill Burr is is somebody like that. But Dave Chappelle is everything about Dave Chappelle is comedian, you know, and and his stand up is when you you know the conceit of stand up is that you're watching somebody just bop up on stage and be hilarious and insightful and have a, an interesting worldview. And he looks, it's, it looks so effortless. It's, and, and when I watch stand-ups, there are brilliant stand-ups who I think are excellent. But when you start doing stand-up and you start working on it a bit, it, it doesn't ruin stand-up, but you know what's You can see the mechanics of what's happening, you know, the, what people are doing. And, and I still think comedians who I watch, who I, I can see what they're doing, I still think they're very good at what they do, but I can see it, you know. I can't see it with Dave Chappelle. It's, you know, it, he... You can't see the workings of it. You're la I laugh at him like a punter. You know, I'm not saying that I'm a breed different to, to, to audience members, but I, I, it's it's a reactive laugh. He he's consistently hilarious. He's consistently insightful. I think he's incredible. I don't agree with everything he says. Uh, you know, there there are things that he he talks about to do with uh, uh, to do with trans and and sexuality and stuff that I don't fully agree with, but. That doesn't stop me enjoying what he's talking. You know, he he takes you down. This is his his logic. This is his world. You're looking at his worldview, and he does. It feels like he doesn't give a shit, and that's very exciting to watch. And I'm not talking about pretending to not give a shit. I'm talking about I. You really do believe he doesn't give a shit, and that is really exciting as an audience member. Yeah, and it's also incomprehensible as a performer because yeah. at some point you must give a shit. Yeah, of course. And and, and, and here's it. I mean, the, like, he, he, he's contributed so much to his 
his own mythology. He had the Chappelle show. He was being paid shitloads of money. He went, fuck this, and walked away from it all because creatively he felt like it wasn't the thing he wanted to do. He was, he was on a $50 million contract yeah. with Netflix. Yeah. He walked away, yeah. literally penniless, yeah. and started gigging from a tour bus. Yeah. And nobody knew where he was. And he asked to play at, in bars for money. Yeah. And, and, and you just sort of think, that is, that's somebody who is devoted to their art you know that's somebody who who just wants to do stand-up and everything else comes afterwards and so then when that happens you sort of go i don't care how much money you get paid you you are so you you've rolled the dice and you've taken the risks and and you don't give a shit and and it's caused controversy like you know his uh i think he won an emmy for his his latest netflix special but when that special came out he got he got destroyed by in reviews and stuff for People saying he's out of touch with his views. It's not. It's it's not in keeping with the 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 woke culture where, that stand up has moved into, and and he was really sort of pilloried for it. Um, I still, you know, I don't agree with everything he says in that in that special. I, you know, we, our views don't align on on some things, but I still think it's a brilliant special. I still think he's a brilliant stand up, and I'm a fan of his. Do you know what I mean? I think he is. I think you're right in saying. He is, if he, he's the very best. He's absolutely the very best. And, you know, it's, I'm always excited to see what he's saying. Better than Pryor? Sorry. <laughs> I don't, look, Pryor did a similar thing. You know, Pryor was, Pryor was, Pryor had a mainstream career, walked away from it, came back and was politicised and, 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 and talking about his life. I, 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 you know, Chappelle's incredible, but Pryor was, you know, Pryor talked about such dark things. You know, if, if there's so many funny routines by Pryor that if you look at the the actual key elements of those stories, it's horrific. He talks about his grandma finding his he was he was addicted to coke, and then his grandma found it, and she's crying, asking him why he's doing this, and he, he made that into a stand-up routine. There's a bit where you know he's so abusive to all of the women in his life. There's a story about how this you know a woman tried to leave him. And then he went out and shot the tires on her car so that she couldn't drive off. And then the police turned out. That's a horrible story. He turned it into a stand-up routine, you know. And he was in, he was incredible, like funny. But everything about Richard Pryor was funny. But that but there's lots of parallels. The, the, Richard Pryor's physicality is funny. The way he stands was funny. His voice is funny. You know, the way he moves when he's doing act outs is adds so much to his routines. Dave, uh, Dave Chappelle has has a lot of the same. Do you know what I mean? It's. Uh, yeah, but but Richard Pryor's the best to, to have ever done it. And, and U.S. stand-up and U.S. comedy. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, you, you're the expert in this, this field, not not me. But we do we do look up to it, don't we? Here, I think so. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've had conversations with uh, with comics about this who think that I'm a bit. I've got a little bit of a bias towards American stand-up. It's partly because I fell in love with American stand-up, but that's what got me into stand-up. But I think that the very best American stand-ups, they are just incredible. What I would say to counter that is I've spent time gigging in America and, you know, I was in LA for, for like six months and I was doing gigs there and I didn't think the standard at that level was was up to the standard in Britain. I, I, I You know, I was... The, the, the good guy, the good people were, were great, but there was a lot of sort of people that I thought weren't as good. And so I thought generally, actually, I thought that the standard in Britain was better. But I think that that top level, those very best American stand-ups, they're just amazing. I mean, we have our great stand-ups as well, but... Who are our great stand-ups? 
Well, look, I think I think Frankie Ball's uh, one of our great stand-ups. Um, you know, I think Jack D's one of our great stand-ups. Um, uh, <laughs> Just thinking about Jack D makes me. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Joe, you know Joe Brand is one of our greatest. I, I think that we have, and and actually, if you look at sort of newer names, I think you know, like for example, I think I think John I think John Richardson's amazing. You know that we do have we do have really great stand-ups in this country. There's some, I do think we have a bit of a different way of writing stand-up and approach to stand-up. When I watched American stand-ups working up material, it was very. It was less gag-driven and more kind of... They were just sort of free-form sort of talking and seeing if they could find the funny from it. That's the clever, though, isn't it? Yeah. But that's the writer's room as well. Yeah, 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 totally. It's and, different. And I think that you get better stuff from that. That You know, that sort of, I'm going to talk for a bit and, and this might be terrible. Yeah, it's high wire without the safety net. Exactly. But when you do it, it's unbelievable. Exactly. When you don't, you're in trouble. Yes, exactly. And I think there's something, there's something good about that. I think that's because you've got to be amazing in America to be any good. Well, I th do you know what? I think you've hit the nail on the head. In order to in order to rise to the top in America, because you can make a living in Britain if you're a decent stand-up. You know, it's hot, obviously at the moment the circuit's completely destroyed, but you can make a, in America. It's so hard to make a living from stand-up, and and you have to get to that. So to to get through, and there's so obviously so many more people doing it. If you get to the top of that pile, you've got to have something about you, man. Do you know what I mean? It's like. It's a really, I, I mean, I saw it. I, when, when I was in LA, I was like thinking, if I was starting again here, I don't know how the fuck I'd emerge from this circuit. It's so, there's so many comics, so many clubs, and so many bottom level gigs to, to work your way through. And then how'd you get spotted? How'd you get, you know, it's hard. But it's the risk and reward, isn't it? Because here, you know, because we're a smaller pond, of course we are, in every, uh, almost every realm, mm. you, you know, um, you can take a risk, but what's the reward? In yeah. America, you know, you might take the same risk, which could be the biggest risk you'll ever take, which might, if it doesn't work out, could finish you off for good. But if it works out, it's it's you've won the lottery. Yeah, yeah. And so why not? You know, we I've talked about it. Talked to Jean Sarpong about it, about her dad. You know, her dad tried to make it here as a businessman, came from Ghana. Um, nobody wanted to know, so he goes to America, absolutely smashes it yeah. because because you know the extremes in America, you know, the polar opposites, you know. The, the negative is horrible. Yeah. But if you if you can go the other way, then literally the world's your oyster. Yeah, and you know I think about you know like Gina Yashere, who who is a brilliant comic who was here in Britain for such a long time, went over to LA, and now she's an exec on a on a on a network sitcom and is absolutely smashing it. And she's always been brilliant, you know. And it's what is what can happen there. Do you know what I mean? It's it's so much bigger. You're right, but. I do think to emerge from there is so much harder. The, 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 the very top American stand-ups are, they have to be so good. They have to be so good. So why do you feel like an imposter still? Because I don't think, I don't think, I don't think TV and comedy, I don't think, I don't think it's com a complete merit, I don't think it's a complete meritocracy. So there is no, you know, when people say to me, you you got this success, so surely that 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 helps you with your imposter syndrome. It doesn't really, because if you don't, if you have that inside you, no matter no amount of external evidence is going to change that. You know, I am. Listen, I I do work hard, and I do, and I I am. I constantly try and better myself in 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 in, in my work and stuff. But I'm lucky. I've had I've had great opportunities. There are other people that haven't had the opportunities I've had. I've been in the right place at the right time for a lot of things, and. And things have worked out well for me, and people have taken me under their wing, and and things have 
and I've been helped in that regard. And there are other people who are great who haven't had this. So, so for me to say the reason I can't have imposter syndrome because I'm doing this TV show, I've written this book and whatever, I don't, you know, I'm lucky. And so I, I'm constantly, and also the other, I just sort of think, you know, I don't ever, I really enjoy creating stuff. I don't enjoy putting it out. When people, when people see it, um, almost immediately I see all of the holes in it and the mistakes in it and where, it's, where I don't think it's good. And so I'm, I have a part of me that's waiting for everybody to, to have the same realisation as I do. So somebody to go, oh, do you know um, how you thought that thing was shit? Everybody knows. <laughs> everybody knows that you didn't know that. Every, we've all been talking about it. Honestly, it's crazy. I can't believe you got away for it, got away with it for as long as you did, man. We've all figured it out. We know your shtick. It's very one-dimensional. But listen, you've had a good run. Uh, if you leave quietly, we won't tell anyone. You know, it's like that. Yeah. You know, you can't. And 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 yeah, I I just won't shake that. But 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 part of me, because I had it from, because I was so negative after gigs and stuff from when I first started. I've had therapy and stuff to try and manage that, you know, because I didn't want to feel like how I did that second half of that Apollo show. I don't want to ever feel like that again. <laughs> and so... Sorry. Because <laughs> I've had therapy and counselling and stuff to help me manage that. And then I started to get paranoid about the fact that I need that in order to be good at what... You know, like, if I suddenly start to, to lose that, I'll lose some sort of edge. You can't fix the mind with the mind. <laughs> Come on. You're going to therapists. They're wondering why you're going to therapists. <laughs> What's the matter with you? Wait, but that's what it is. That is it. I sort of like going. Well, oh. that's free of charge. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> what do they say about imposter syndrome at therapy? What's the gist? There's a lot of talk about the fact that um, my inner voice is is too cruel and and too negative, and it's sort of there's that there's there's you, you kind of reach you try and retrain your inner voice and. You know, you go through things where you... you... <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Try and retrain your inner voice. And it's not easy being a really successful TV funny bloke. Like, man, getting four no, grand for a corporate gig. You don't understand! Mate, but that's so funny because you do think that. You do think that. So I don't have... This is bullshit. Why am I... Why am I playing this fucking violin, man? This makes no sense. Really do you know It's just, why don't people like my sitcom as much as I want them to? Is there, uh, is there, I mean, therapy's great, don't get me wrong. But is there, um, is there not just a, is there not just a, a quick fix? I'm trying to, it's not a, you know, sometimes it's useful to take a sledgehammer to a, a walnut. Well, I have, I, I have, uh, I have kind of, I, I read a, Eckhart Tolle's book, uh, is it New World? Yeah, uh, yeah, New World. Yeah. 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 And um, uh, somebody recommended it to me. And uh, it's that thing about, um, about, I sort of took from it what I took from it. But what I took from it was, is that it's just, it's just worrying about if this thing is going to lead to this thing or if this is going to go away. All of that is just fruitless. It's just completely pointless. And you just throw yourself into what you're doing in the moment and try and enjoy the thing you're doing at the moment. Like, for example... I come onto your radio show yesterday, right? It's a big radio show. I respect, you know, you're 
because of the fact that you're Chris Evans, there's an intimidation, not an intimid intimidation, but you know what I mean? You're nervous about doing it, you're promoting your book or whatever. You could think to yourself, Jesus, if, I, if that goes wrong, uh, and I didn't think this, but you could think this, if this goes wrong or if Chris doesn't like me or if the interview goes badly, this could be bad for the book, which could lead to da-da-da. You know, you can think about that. Or you can think, I'm just going to really enjoy having a chat with Chris. Uh, you know, I, I, you can't control anything beyond that. I'm just going to throw myself into having this discussion and whatever will be, will be. It's that attitude. Do you know what I mean? Where I go into a gig, I don't want seeing this gig as a progression to something else or I'm worrying about the repercussions of this. I'm just going to try and enjoy this tour show. I'm going to have the most fun I can during this tour show and everything else. That, you know, it's that. It's that, really. It's as simple as that. And that kind of has helped me a lot. Yeah, I mean, Eckhart, is, he's, he's the man. I mean, you know, you can, you can, he's my favourite person in the world, apart yeah. from my wife. Yeah. You're not, my kids, oh, seriously. Um, sorry, kids. Um, <laughs> you are, honestly, it's not him. Uh, no, one of our children is called Eckhart. Right. Um, because it's funny when you look to other spiritual teachers, because he's a teacher, isn't he? Um, they get nearly to where he is, and what they've discovered is so profound and so enlightening, mm. they they have thought in their own journey, I'm done. And then Eckhart has a word. Yeah. And you go, oh, no, no, that's, <laughs> that's where we are. And, you know, his first book, famously, The Power of Now, yeah. my favorite book in the world, the one I compared to yours yesterday. Yes. Yours to yours. I didn't realize you were a fan of his. Um, you know, and my favorite thing that he ever said was, because so he says, he says, you know, it's all about now. It's just about now. And mm. the book is about now. It's called The Power of Now. And it, the power within the now is is infinite. It's um, incomparable. Uh, there's, there's nothing like it. It's exactly what we all need and what we all have at all times. Lovely quote to go alongside it. You know, what you're looking for is where you're looking from. Not sometimes, all the time. Um, somebody went to see him. He was giving one of his talks and he gave a talk in... 1996, 97. Uh, somebody from the New York Times um, went to see him and reviewed his talk then. And they went to see him 20 years later. And the review said, well, he's still, he, you know, <laughs> he's still claiming it's about the now. And it's like, well, yeah, because it is. What would you? He doesn't well, have to move that on. That doesn't need refreshing. <laughs> and the, the, the first time the review, the first time the guy loved him in the 90s, yeah, but, you know, he's, yeah. Where are we going with this? It's Eckhart? so funny. Not going anywhere it? with it. It's so funny. That, you know, and what there's the, the great Eckhart watch you can buy, mm. where you know weather should be a one. It's just now, <laughs> now, now. What time is it? It's now. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, I, that I, I do think it is that, isn't it? It's it's that. Um, I found it really interesting actually, uh, uh, and and that has, I do think that 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 has. That taking that attitude into things has been great for me. But also, it's the intellectualization of anything, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, I know you're around and Piers Morgan was around this morning because yeah. uh, we had him on the show. And the thing about Piers is, you know, it's all thought. Yeah. You know, his job is all thought. It's all opinion. You know, there's another bloke but who I love um, who works on another radio station. He wrote a, a book called How to Be Right in a World Gone Wrong. Yeah. But, of course, you could say, well, how, the, way, the best way to be right is to prove somebody else wrong. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Who wants, why do you want to spend your life doing that? Yeah. You know, and what's right and what's wrong? And Shakespeare said, you know, there's no such thing as good or bad. It's just a thinking that makes it so. It's just about thinking. And once you drop the thinking from everything, yeah. then everything's all right because you go – because what you say is why is you know why do I feel this about this because you're saying so that aspect of my thinking is, is not to my it does not serve my purpose well but however this aspect of my thinking then I'm fine with that yeah. but it's just thinking yeah you just stop thinking yeah it know? is it is it is a it's a it's an amazing thing and I, I just think that it, it's actually it's almost like it was written to improve your comedy because I you know we, 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 we you know because I, I 
you, 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 if I'm at a gig, yeah. If I'm completely in the moment, you know, you don't, you just stop thinking, and you just, you're just doing the thing. You're, inf- you're so much better, you know, and and and. But I've just found that in every aspect of life, it's just that being in the moment and and just enjoying that for it, and not not thinking about this grand scheme of things and all this. Just losing that has been uh, amazing. Yeah, and you know, it's to do with labels, isn't it? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, morning, afternoon, evening. So we've compartmentalized our lives, or we've been taught to. Somebody's invented this compartmentalization mm. of our lives. So we feel like we have to be different or act different, you know, in different aspects of our lives. And I took that for a while. So I thought, I've got my work bit, then I've got my M4 bit, and then I've got my going through the front door bit. And, you know, every bit, I must be as good for each pool of my life as I was for the last and I will yes. be for the next. But then that's, 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 you could write a book about that and go, well, here's the answer. Yeah. But that's the, what the gurus are on the way to Eckhart have done. Yeah, yeah. And he'll just say, no, it's all the same. Yeah. It's all the same. And you were talking about, you know, uh, fearing things that are, that are sort of, you know, uh, coming up. And I used to think about, oh, I've got two shows next week and I've got an interview here. I've got to get myself up for that, you know, and, you know, there are, I saw them as walls that needed to be to be exploded or, or whatever. And now I, I've, I thought, no, it's much healthier to just try and be really well and to take myself to whatever I'm required to do that day. Yeah. And the challenge is in getting up and feeling good. And then that good enough me hopefully is good enough for whatever's going to yeah. happen. And that's a much better way. To, oh, no. oh, God, you can breathe so much easier. Uh, because it's, you know... If I'm if I'm as good as I can be when yeah. I leave the house, then I'm done. Yeah, but but I do think I do think you can fall out of that very easily. Oh no, it's a practice. Yeah, it's a practice. That's why you, you have to do it every day. So easily. Yeah. Um, One good night out will do it. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. And you don't realise it's about four days later. You think, shit, where's my philosophy gone? I think I left it at the party. What? I left what? it in the Uber. Why have I suddenly become really fucking anxious about this thing <laughs> about coming? About everything. Oh, of course, you idiot. <laughs> Right, um, when you were a teacher, yes, uh, did was there a moment when you thought, I love this, you know, I know it's really important, I know it's of service, and I'm, I suspect you're very good at it, actually, um, but it's not what I want to do, and I need to do something else. Um, it was a bit of it was a bit of push and, and pull, really, because so I was I was a te- I was started as a maths teacher, and then I ended up becoming a head of sixth form at the school I was at. And then what happened was, is if I'm being honest, I thought I, I thought I was good at the classroom stuff and I was good at the engaging pu- students and stuff. I was good at all of that. Everything else, the organisation, the admin and all that, I was, I would say, almost dysfunctionally bad at. And, you know, all of my sort of pay reviews, pay reviews and stuff like that, they would go, you're so, you're so good at engaging the students and stuff like that. But... As good as you are at that, you are terrible at everything else to do. You know, they wouldn't say it in those words, but that was... So I was kind of... um, So there was that part of me that's starting to think, well, being a teacher is being good at all of those things. You can't just be a good classroom practitioner and and be shit at everything else. You know, so there's part of me that's thinking maybe I'm not... Maybe I'm not as suited to this as I hoped I would be. But I just um, started to fall in love with comedy and realised I couldn't stop doing comedy. (laughs) <laughs> ever and so the, the for me to do the, not even as a money thing sorry did you think you were funny did i think i was funny yeah or did you just love comedy i didn't think i, I don't think I, I no i didn't think i was funny i just thought i love comedy i love doing i love right. doing comedy. just love it yeah I just regardless love it. i just love sorry, it yeah sorry, yeah I, I didn't 
I did. I loved it, and also I was getting, you know, I was getting offered more and more, you know, gigs and stuff. So you felt like there was something in it. Um, but, um, and then comedy started taking off, and I, and then I realised that I'm never going to be able to give up comedy, even if it, even if it, it nothing came of it. I am going to do comedy forever, some form of comedy forever. And as a result of me being addicted to going and doing gigs, I was becoming shitter and shitter as a teacher because teaching is a lifestyle. You can't go and do that and switch off at the end of the day. You're you're in it. Do you know what I mean? If you're a, if you're a good teacher, and so I realised that for, <laughs> both for the good of my career and for the good of the children who are in my in my care, I needed to move on. So it wasn't like a. I never had a moment in a classroom where some kid was shouting at me, and I thought, "Fuck this!" It wasn't that at all. It was. It was just a sort of a, a gradual realization. I knew, once I started doing comedy, I didn't want to give it up, and also I wanted to be a really good teacher. If I if I'd been able to carry on doing comedy and continue being a, a really good and be a really good teacher, I would have probably carried on for longer than I did. But in a way, comedians are teachers, aren't they? In what I mean, in what way? In terms of well, you 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 go to a comedy gig and you learn stuff. Yeah, I guess so, but... With humour, which is the greatest way of teaching. Yeah, I mean, I You're think... The best teachers in the world are the funny teachers. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I mean, I, 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 I have this discussion a lot, actually, because it's... Because I do, in my stand-up, talk about, explore ideas and, and things. And, and, but for me, I, I have opinions that I haven't expressed on stage because I haven't found a funny way to say them yet. But there are some comedians that feel like... You know, there's a line that you draw. How much do I place being funny important over what I'm saying? How much do I place being what I'm saying being over funny? And there's a, there's all the sort of grades in between that. And so, um, yeah, I've played with that over the years. You know, sometimes I've said things and I think this isn't as funny, but I do sort of kind of want to say this. But actually, the truth is, I'm no more qualified than anybody else to express an opinion. So I sort of have a duty to make it funny. You know. Yeah, I mean, qualification to express an opinion is an interesting phrase anyway, because as, as long as you just, you know, describe your take on something, say, well, you know, what about, what do you think about this? Because that's what you're doing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's what I, t yeah, it yeah. is what you're doing. It is what you're doing. And and often I will sort of pr present a series of arguments of why I think something and then completely undermine it by presenting it. You know, it, there's fun to be had in that. Do yeah, you know there's what I mean? loads of fun. So you're 42. Yes. Right. You're trying to get ahead of this midlife crisis of yours. Well, I didn't realise I was trying to do this. Well, is that what I'm trying well, to do? You've written a whole book about it, for fuck's sake. Read your book. That's what it is, man. <laughs> I wrote one when I was 44 called Call the Midlife. It's the same book. It's not as funny. It's not as sweary. Same book. <laughs> and I thought... <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, you can't get ahead of it. Well, I, I couldn't. Maybe you could. Well, what's going to happen? He's going to have one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. And what, how does that manifest itself? Um, life gets better. Right. Okay. It's like a mini breakdown. Okay. I think it's like a mini breakdown because it's about your story, isn't it? Mm. So in by by trying to get ahead of a midlife crisis, you're trying to, you're trying to outwrite it. Okay. But it's life. You can't outwrite life. You can outwrite your – you can – Rewrite, overwrite your story about your story about life, mm. your story about you in life. You know mm. your story. You know we've, got, we've all got lots of different stories, but um, but you can't keep it going because it's too. It takes too much energy, and so yeah. so the the more in denial one is of what is happening, yeah, the more energy it takes to keep that sort of facade up, and that's how you have a breakdown. And I think a midlife crisis is a mini breakdown. 
and I think you should embrace it. And, and so if you are going to give up drinking, which you've been hokey and cokeying with for a while now, more cokey than hokey. <laughs> By the way, how's that going? I'm I'm drinking. <laughs> but you say in the book, you say, which I've been, you know, <laughs> contemplating for a while now, giving up drinking. Where are we with that? I listen, I gave up for six months. Yeah, yeah, good. And it was fine. Uh, I had a pal who gave up murdering for six months, but he's back <laughs> back at it now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's that's an ongoing issue for me. Like, you know, I, I haven't figured it out yet. Why is it is it is it because you want to Look back, because everybody I know, by the way, I'm in exactly the same group, right? I think about not drinking ever again a lot of the time. Okay. Right? And in in my book, <laughs> right, the, half of it is I gave up drinking for 100 days, and it's the diary of the 100 days that I gave up drinking. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's almost, did you read my book? You've, <laughs> no, read, you've, you've read my book and made it funny. <laughs> Sorry, you've read my book and rewritten and made it funny <laughs> and called yourself Ramesh, haven't you? <laughs> So but, you um, gave up drinking. Yeah, same thing, same thing, same thing. And one of the things I think about all the time is that the some of the people I know who've given up for good in as much as now can be good, but yeah. for a substantial amount of time, who I don't think were our colleagues, mm. right? Their lives have like vertical, re, you know, relaunch. And they were doing okay anyway. And I thought, you know, what is it about some people, you know, um, who are, have this natural, uh, you know, whatever it is, this natural rocket fuel. I feel like I, you know, rightly or wrongly, I just feel like I'm rocket fueled. Mm. And you, I think if you could, if some people contaminate that with anything else, then it can never make them any better or even give them escape because they probably don't need it. We just think we need it. And what about if we give ourselves our chance to be our absolute sober, most clear-minded best. Yeah. What about is that is that That's, why or not? It's partly why. Yeah. Is, give, give us the other bit then. The other bit is that I I don't I don't enjoy how I become when I'm drinking. You know, like I, <clears throat> you know, that whole inhibitions losing thing. I just don't. You know, that doesn't I, happen to you. It does, but I start to become. A, I feel like I start to become a prick, you know, right. and I, I can't see it. I start to become this sort of arsehole who thinks he's being charming and. And uh, and then I sort of think about it after. I think, oh bloody hell, that was awful, um, and I don't like that, you know. So, but but there is a bit when I do like it, you know. There is a bit when I do. But like that it. window gets smaller and smaller. Right. Yeah. And I think that's about something to do with enzymes in your tummy. And is that what? Oh, is that that's an actual thing? That's thing a is thing, it? Yeah, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, that that is what I'm. You know, it used to be fun, 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 and then I think oh, I've gone a bit. But now it's. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was more fun, yeah, and less this. Yeah, the and it's more that and less yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So totally. maybe it'll just grow. You'll grow out of it almost. Maybe, maybe, but yeah, the, the the mechanics around trying to give up drinking with my, you know, with friends, you know, there's all of that. Having those conversations with your friends yeah, and stuff like but, that. You know, that's, that's that's like a minute in in the whole scheme of things. Yeah, seems true. like more than a minute now, but um, and you can always reverse it. You can always you can always start drinking again. Yeah, true. You know, true. So anyway, that that's uh that's our um. AA meeting out of the way. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for allowing me to rewrite your book. Um, and as, as quickly now, you are forty two, yeah. right? Okay, the, the books the book's fantastic. By the way, you've got it's oh, called as good so. as it gets. Um, life lessons from one who has read my book. Yeah, correct. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be the paperback. That's what that's what the reluctant adult. That's what the paperback edition okay, would be called. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you're halfway through this career. If not, maybe not even that. 
you're halfway through your life. Maybe you're only a third of the way through your career. What do you, what do you reckon? What's uh, what's on the hit list? I don't know. Uh, I, I want to do more. Um, I'd like to do a bit more scripted stuff. Acting. Yeah. Um, Movies. Possibly, yeah. I, but 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 stuff. I, I'd like to write. I, I'd love to write a, a comedy film and and and, and make that. That would be great. See, some films are funny, but not comedy films. Like Lockstock would be funny. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'd like to write a, a comedy film. Um, but um, but that, but yeah. But if that doesn't happen, I won't be upset. You know, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of. When are you uh, going to stop um, worrying about what things cost? I don't know. I I, I can't see a time when I. But but it's so it's so irrational because some things I don't care about. I, like if I see a pair of trainers I like, I don't seem to give a shit about how much I spend it's, on them. It's so funny, I'm with you all the way. And then other things, like if a packet of crisps is overpriced, yeah, I, know, and I, I, I lose my mind. Yeah, it's so inconsistent. Uh, I can't see myself losing it. Somebody told me I need to hold on to it. Well, I, to be honest, I was going to say I think it's very healthy. And mm. I also think, and we'll finish on this, Yeah. Um, the impo- imposter syndrome, I think it comes with the job. Right. I think if you're any good, you just have it forever. And I've never met anybody who's any good who has vanquished it. Okay. And I think it's all right. And I think you just accept. Eckhart would say, accept it. Mm. Make sure every decision you come, you make comes from a place of yes. And the yes is the acceptance of the thing that otherwise you might be in denial of. And if you're in denial of that, there's some turbulence to your soul and to your being and to your, 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 um, your thinking. And therefore, whatever comes out will not be the right thought. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I think our time's up here. Thank you very much. <laughs> And see you next week. <laughs> okay. I can make 10 o'clock, you? Yeah, yeah I'll see you at 10. Tuesday or Thursday. I'll see you at 10, mate. All right, bye. <laughs> Great, Oh, mate. my God, that was so much fun. Was it? Thanks, man. <laughs> that was wicked. Ramesh Ranganathan. I want him to be my friend. That's what this podcast is all about, getting new friends for me. This has been How to Wow. And today's show has been brought to you by Athletic Greens. Go to athleticgreens.com slash how to wow now. And if you do input the how to wow bit of that URL, you'll get a free year supply of vitamin D and five travel free sachets today. That's their special offer to you by us. Athleticgreens.com slash how to wow. Have a great one. See you next time. Ta-da.